Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today I'm joined once again by my good friend Bernie to talk about Jonathan Demme's multiple Oscar-winning psychological thriller The Silence of the Lambs, in which a young FBI agent, Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, seeks the help of imprisoned serial killer Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, to catch another elusive killer. The film went on to win a resounding five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins winning Best Male and Female Leading Roles. The film is currently streaming on Netflix. Bernie, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me back, man. How are you doing? Not too bad. You know, again, another week, another movie to review with you. So I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to work into the rotation more. You know, uh, I am too. It's just, we always choose these crazy psychological movies and I have to kind of decompress and watch like Curb Your Enthusiasm <laughs> afterwards to get back to a normal basis. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm the same way. I've been watching, rewatching like It's Always Sunny in Philly as soon as we finish because uh, we seem to pick some pretty heavy movies, but e- each movie we pick, no matter how heavy it is, we seem to get a uh, pretty good conversation out of it. Very so, much. At least there's that. Exactly. I mean, I think this one, you know, from all the ones that we've talked about, Silence of the Lambs is just such a unique film. Um, and there's just the, the director just does a phenomenal job of, again, keeping us guessing of kind of where the story is developing, who are the kind of real antagonists in this? Is it is it Buffalo Bill? Is it really Anthony Hopkins' character, Hannibal Lecter? Um, I mean, it's it's just a phenomenal movie for us to kind of review and talk about. Yeah, so I'm kind of interested, like, what is your experience with the world of Hannibal Lecter? Um, there's, like, multiple novels that the films are based on. There's multiple films. Um had you seen this before? Yeah, so I've seen this one before. Um, I believe mm-hmm. there's a follow-up to this as well that's based in Italy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so the sequel was directed by Ridley Scott, um, and that was called Red Drag. Uh, no, that was called Hannibal, excuse me. And then they did a sequel to that that was called oh, Red that's Drag. That's a sequel, okay. So yeah, so I've seen all three of those then. I, I'm familiar that there is a, you know some sort of a series if it's on Netflix or Hulu I'm not familiar exactly with that but um I haven't had the chance to look at it yet um but I think you know when you have such an iconic character like you know Hannibal Lecter specifically with Anthony Hopkins playing him it's hard to recreate that in a way that's kind of palpable or really you know it, it kind of you know, it suffices what you're kind of looking for out of one of these kind of crazy horror thriller type of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, out of all three of those movies, uh, you know, in that trilogy, I guess you could say, I think this one obviously is the best one. Um, just the, the twists and turns that it takes on us. And again, just the way the director kind of frames it from start to finish. It's, it's just such a captivating movie to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is definitely the strongest of that trilogy because they did make a fourth movie and then the series that you mentioned that's on uh, Netflix right now the Hannibal TV series is actually a prequel to this um, so this I think is really strong and in a rewatch because I had only seen this once before on a rewatch I really I guess the first time you watch this movie you're so captivated by Anthony Hopkins how creepy he is how disturbing how he blends being a psychopath but yet he's like charming and intelligent at the same time that it almost kind of overshadows Jodie Foster a little bit. And the fact that like on a rewatch, her role is so, 
outside of the norm, especially for kind of these detective thrillers of the era, because this came out in uh, 91, I believe. Um, And just seeing such a, like a strong female protagonist in a movie that from the outset seems like it's going to be very procedural, but it kind of goes in a lot of different directions and blending of genres that um, I wasn't really expecting. Right. Right. I mean, you know, obviously we're, it's 2020 now. Um, so mm-hmm. We're a little bit, you know, into the future in that sense uh, compared to what they were dealing with back then. But just in terms of like how uh, Clarice Sterling was treated throughout that whole movie she is yeah. just, she's such a phenomenal character. And um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the woman that plays her uh, Jodie Foster, she does such a great job of kind of taking you see all the varying emotions that a character can have in that from being absolutely disgusted where that, you know, crazy prisoner um, when she goes down the first time to see Hannibal Lecter and, you know, he puts, he throws a bodily fluid, let's just say on her. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, nice. To, you know, to her trying to have those conversations and kind of growing confidence in understanding who Hannibal Lecter is and then again, to fast forward even to, you know, towards that ending when she realizes she's actually in the house of Buffalo Bill and she thought she was just speaking to, I think it was Mrs. Lipkin's son or something like that. Yeah. Um, so just the the array of emotions that she shows as a character, I mean, it's, I'm not sure if she won if, uh, any kind of awards for this, uh, but if she didn't, it was, it's criminal in that sense. No, she did. So she won um, Best Leading Actress that year. She won an Oscar for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I definitely agree. Like it's very much a a strong female role in a world that is male dominated. And we see, like you said, a lot of ways that all she's an outsider basically in throughout the entire movie. Like not only is she an outsider in this world of going from, uh, FBI trainee to meeting and being forced to interview one of the most deadly serial killers ever. And then we also have the fact that she's an outsider just in the world in general, like She's a woman in a man's world. And we see that throughout just like the very first interaction that she has with someone not in the FBI is with um, Dr. Chilton, who plays the head of the uh, insane asylum where Hannibal Lecter's residing. And like within the first 30 seconds, he's hitting on her and he's talking about like taking her out on the town and all this stuff. And just like all this kind of being a, he's a sleazy dude. And then she eventually, she kind of just like rebukes all of his advances basically in a way that's not over the top, she kind of treats it like she's used to it in a way. But it's kind of just like the very early example of like everybody, the world is hostile to her in multiple ways. Like obviously it's less severe when it's just men hitting on you compared to being a room with a serial killer. But at the same time, like that's still her pushing against unwanted behavior throughout the entire movie that kind of makes it intense in a way that I didn't pick up on the first right, time. Exactly. I mean, even to, uh, you know, they're at the coroner's office where uh, after they're evaluating like one of the bodies that they find in the lake. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. she, they find like, um, I, I can't remember if it was like a moth shell or, or like, it was a moth cocoon. Excuse me. Um, apparently I, I know a lot about this stuff, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but they find that and she takes it to, you know, some sort of animal kind of expert that understands this stuff. And even then when they're analyzing it, one of those guys, you know, is like, do you like some sort of wine? And she's just, you know, amusing the conversation. I think 
And mm-hmm. in this particular case, and I think a lot of women could probably relate to this, is that, you know, there's going to be times where even doesn't matter how important or how serious a, a nature is, you know, guys will be guys in that sense. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it, you know, to be able to kind of push through that and still come out with, you know, such a strong character in that sense. Uh, again, I think she just did a phenomenal job in this role. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you see her become more and more confident the longer that the movie goes on and the more in-depth that she becomes involved in the case. Because we learn fairly early on that the only reason that Jack Crawford picked her, like the whole time we're kind of wondering, like, why the hell is he picking some trainee that has no real experience? And the, the whole idea is that she's attractive. And so Jack Crawford assumes that, oh, if I send this attractive woman down to go interview Hannibal Lecter, it'll shake him basically. And he'll either reveal a piece of information because they want her to interview him to reveal um, different clues and facts about Buffalo Bill, who's another serial killer that's been skinning women. I think he's killed five people so far, but it's kind of this idea that like, she's just being manipulated the whole time. And you mentioned the uh, morgue that they go to visit and it's like, she's there, but as soon as she gets there, like everybody's looking down on her, basically like all those cops are kind of just like dog, mad dog in her. They don't even want her in the room for some of the important conversations, but then her intellect kind of like forces them to accept her within the investigation. Cause she's the one that ends up like breaking the case essentially. Right. I mean, specifically to that point there, uh, as they're in that scene, Jack Crawford played by Scott Glenn, um, again, who's also phenomenal in this movie. Um, he, you know, the, the lead sheriff or detective, um, like on the local precinct mm-hmm. level, they start a dialogue and he starts telling him a little bit about like the graphic nature of what happened. And even Jack who, you know, Jack Crawford, who knows, what Clarice starring is, you know, he understands that she can take some of this stuff um, in terms of like the intimate details and um, just the, the graphic nature of what happened. And even at that point, he's like, let's move this conversation somewhere else and looks right at her and the kind of camera pans to her. So even mm-hmm. when she's, again, she's had all these conversations with uh, Hannibal Lecter. She, she's brought so much to the case already and they're, hiding certain things from her not not knowing or not being able to think that she can handle some of this and it's just again it's one more of those sprinkles of kind of a a minor insult that she has to deal with throughout the movie yeah absolutely um a little note that i during my research uh i never knew that michelle pfeiffer who was from scarface and batman returns was supposed to be the jodie foster role originally and it's just like I could never imagine anybody else being in the Jodie Foster role. It's just, it's a, like I said earlier, I've only seen this movie once, but it's such a defining role for her career because of just like how unassuming she seems. And yet she ends up breaking the case. Like she should be, she should have Jack, Jack Crawford's job essentially. Like it's very rare in these types of movies. Well, I don't know if it's rare, but it, especially for that era, it was outside of the box in terms of like, this female protagonist who happens to be like lovely and whatnot is the smartest one in the room in the majority of the scenes. Like she kind of exposes the fact like that trope of the feds being mindless or being uh, inept at trying to solve different things. And we even see that at the end of the movie, they try, they think that they've tracked down Buffalo bill and then they storm a house and it's just some empty house. And yet Clarice Starling, this five foot something woman now is the one that's interviewing this 
behemoth of a serial killer. I, that scene, the the juxtaposition of them, you know, the SWAT team kind of coming in, they're hiding behind some sort of like a floral van, you know, agents kind of everywhere. And then you're seeing Buffalo Bill, you know, dancing around that girl trying to, you know, get the dog down into that hole or pit that she's in. Uh, and then, you know, the doorbell rings a couple of times and then it's, you know, they break in obviously, but it's uh, Clarice when the door opens yeah. Again, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, they, they got him. It's, we're all good. You know, everyone's pretty much in the clear. And then that last 20 minutes, uh, you know, I think that made this movie, uh, you know, especially watching it a second time, so much more good just because, and so much more interesting just off of the fact that you, you've invested all this time now and you think that you're going to see this and nothing happens on one end. And Heart mm-hmm. drops on the other because you're like, oh fuck! Like you see the apologies for the swear, by the way, but you see the. It's okay. It's an emerald oh, show. Well, yeah. So then you realize that she's kind of screwed when you see the moth flying around, and there's the, um, you know, the sewing kits and stuff like that. That's in that's mm-hmm. invisible for her uh, or invisible range in that sense. Um, and right. again, you're just like, oh shit! All right, so where? Where is this about to go? Um, and you see Jack Crawford, you know, it pans to him when they realize that there's no one in there. And he goes, Clarice. And again, just mm-hmm. reinforces this notion that, all right, she's on her own now. All these people that have underestimated her. And now it's basically, you know, the balls in her court, essentially. Um, and yeah. To see how that kind of came together was just insane. It's basically like the worst case scenario ever for her. <laughs> But uh, that's a fantastic example because that scene actually, I was listening to an interview and that scene originally, they didn't juxtapose it like that. It wasn't kind of cut together because we get those various cuts. You said like we see the agents moving in, we cut down to the basement. So through that editing, we assume that the FBI is at the right house because the bells, the doorbells ringing and stuff, but it ends up being Clarice. Originally, those two scenes played out one after the other. So it was the FBI breaking into a house and then it was the doorbell ringing and then it was Clarice at the front door when they originally were doing that. But then as soon as they watched the first rough cut, they were like, this is, that's a whole, there's no suspense in this scene. Like this is terrible. So then they went back and they started editing it and chopping it up and mixing it to what I think is one of the most tense scenes of the entire movie. I I mean, there's a number of super tense scenes. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if you could pick out which I guess is the most tense scene just because again, when you're thinking about um, that situation with Hannibal Lecter, when he's in that hotel or whatever building that they're kind of holding, I think it's a courthouse courthouse uh, and there's police everywhere. And then you see him kind of take out that piece of the pen that he had, I don't know if he had swallowed the pen or what exactly he did with that. Probably had it under his tongue or something. Just normal kind of a thing that would, yeah. Um, you know, it comes in handy when you're a serial killer. Right, right. I mean, I personally wouldn't know. Um, well. You know, that's a that's another that's a, for another podcast on another day. Right, yeah, please. <laughs> um, no, but um, you know, to see to see that kind of little you know piece of that pen come out of his mouth, and then you see it kind of in between his fingers as he's going to get handcuffed, and again, mm-hmm. that suspense builds where you're like, I know where this is going. But this can't, like, there's cops everywhere, right? Like, they have this guy secured, and 
the way that that whole scene played out, um, mm. I mean, I think that's probably one of the like top 10 or top 15 most suspenseful uh, like scenes that I've ever seen in film. Uh, yeah, I mean, somehow somehow we managed to pick Silence of the Lambs and we've gotten 15 minutes in and we haven't mentioned Anthony Hopkins' performance in any depth. Uh, <laughs> so I had misremembered just how terrifying his performance was. The opening introduction to his character I had forgotten was just Clarice is walking down by all the cells. She's seeing these very unstable serial killers that are housed there or, um, or ki- just killers. And we see his set. The first thing we see is that his cell is different than everybody else's. Everybody else has these bar steel bars that you would assume his though is just plexiglass. So immediately like visually we're cued in that he is different in somehow. And we don't really know anything about him up until that point. And then once she gets closer and closer, we see that while everybody else is sitting or standing or they're sitting at a table or they're sitting in bed or they're like hanging over the bars, Hannibal Lecter's just like, hanging out there, like waiting for her, which is just like the most sinister, unnerving introduction to a character that you could have. I I think that, um, I can't remember if it was the first interaction or second interaction they had, but there's a moment where uh, Barney and, and Chilton are kind of explaining to her who Hannibal really is, like just give more mm-hmm. in-depth in, uh, like, uh, description about him. And they show her a picture that we never actually see Mm-hmm. The way they described the picture and what happened. So essentially what happened was um, he had, I forget if it was a stroke or some sort of an issue. He got sent to the infirmary and they took off like the mask that he was wearing, essentially uh, the you know face holster, I guess. And he yeah. someone's like basically cheek off and eye off. And the way that mm-hmm. they're describing it was more harrowing than ever even looking at that photo. Um, and yeah. just the way the the script writing and and the way that they did like the cinematography for this w- made it so much more suspenseful that when you actually see Anthony Hopkins and you see this, you know, he's a relatively old man, but he looks kind of slick and he's obviously very intelligent. Mm-hmm. And the the way that he begins his conversation with her, and then the depths of which it gets to, you know, it it starts out relatively pleasant. And towards, you know, the the second conversation they have, he's basically calling her like a whore and saying that she's like, like, you know, white trash from West Virginia. And it's like, this guy just has such a, a more deeper understanding of people. And it's, uh, again, it's just, it's fascinating to watch all that unfold and, and getting that glimpse of, of Anthony Hopkins' character in that. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up about how that scene where they're telling Clarice about an injury that a nurse sustained because Hannibal Lecter basically fakes an injury so that he can go to the medical bay, which is going to be somewhat isolated. Just the the fact that they're tell that they're telling us rather than showing us, which is usually not the case in writing. Obviously, most of the time you want to show and not tell. But in terms, since it's a movie, like it's incredibly effective and it's more so effective than if they just show us an image, a gory image, basically. And that's really a testament to uh, Ted Talley, who's the person that adapted Thomas Harris's novel, uh, Silence of the Lambs. His screenplay adapting it is has is filled with these examples of things where we're tell we're told things more often than we're shown. And since it's so interconnected and interwoven with the few actual scenes that have violence 
it makes it that much more effective. And I think even simpler, I guess by today's standards, you'd think that they're simple. Like when Hannibal beats one of the guards to death with the baton, like we've seen plenty of things like that, but the fact that it's been, uh, it's coming after all of these kind of like disturbing descriptions. And then once you actually see the violence unfold on screen, I found it to be more disturbing. Very much so. I mean, you know, I think the baton beating in that specific scene was the least of their worries. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't necessarily understand what he was trying to illuminate with that guard that he had basically hung up. Like I, he looked like. I, I, th- I think it was, I'm Hannibal Lecter. And if you fuck with me, I'm going to gut you and hang you up <laughs> from the rafters. <laughs> you know, this is a weird side note, but how long do you think it would take for you to do that? I mean, that's like a grown man, 200 pounds. You're just going to lift him up. There's like an American flag hanging between them. I mean, he had some, you know, he had some serious time to do that or some serious strength. I mean, that's, that's. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the elements of the films that translates to the TV show in the most disturbing way possible in that all of the Hannibal Lecter movies have this kind of fantasy element to them where this old man is able to do these horrific things and manipulate bodies in ways that in reality he would never be able to do. Like, like you said, he's probably 60 in that movie. Like he's not going to be able to, he doesn't have the time. He doesn't have the strength. It's just not feasible, but it's one of those things where it serves. That's the fantasy element of these kills and how he gruesomely displays bodies in horrific ways it serves a purpose. It serves to show that this guy, no matter how smart he is, no matter how charming he can be at the same time, like if you ever give him a moment where you're not paying attention, like that he can do the most grueling thing imaginable. Right. And I mean, I think the big takeaway from this podcast that we have very different uh, ideas of fantasies. Uh, Cause if that- <laughs> fantasy is in like, <laughs> fantastical not fantasy as in i'm trying to do that to somebody that we should probably talk off air more about that jake but (laughs) yeah well i'll save that for uh therapy (laughs) no but um just that whole scene again where you're you're in a place where you think everything is safe right you have police everywhere sterling uh goes out uh, clarice goes up there excuse me and has a conversation with him for five minutes before uh Chitlin, Chitlin, sorry, I, I forgot. Uh, Dr. Chitlin. Yeah. Uh, he comes in with uh, the police officers to kind of take her away. And there's like a small moment of connection there with uh, Clarice and Hannibal because he's like, oh, you forgot, um, you know, your paper, your file. like that. He like kind of rubs her finger in some weird way. Like yeah. it's just a, I mean, it's not even like a sexual thing. It just seemed more. He's right. trying to weirdly help her or trying to, again, connect mm-hmm. with her in some weird way that he's doing it. But that whole scene, how it plays out, again, re-watching it, like, it's not as suspenseful because you know it's going to happen, right? But what were you thinking when you first watched that? And were you, like, when did it kind of hit you that, oh, shit, like, Hannibal's actually that guy that's in the, the ambulance. He's not actually the guy that's in the elevator shaft. So I actually completely forgot that. I knew that when he was escaping, I knew that he wasn't on the elevator because he's he's scarily intelligent. Like, he's not going to get caught like that. But I completely forgot that he basically switches bodies with one of the guards and he cuts off the guy's face. And then 
when the ambulance is out of the uh, drives away from the courthouse and they're on the highway, like the guy's calling for backup or whatever. And then he just takes the guy's face off and sits up in the back. Like that was so brutal. And I completely forgot, but I want to go back to what you said about his relationship with um, Clarice in that I'm so thankful that Jonathan Demi never made it like a sexual thing because it's funny that in this world where all of the men are basically hostile to Clarice in one way or another, Hannibal Lecter never is. He's obviously a serial killer and he's a Hannibal the cannibal and all that. But at the same time, he's the only male character in that uh, film that actually like is respectful towards her in certain ways at the very, when they first meet and he's like figuring her out, like you said, he kind of beats her down with a description of her. That's like brutally honest. And I think it nails home for her in a lot of ways because it's, he's right on the money when he's calling her a rube and all of these things. But you start as he starts interacting with her more and more. And especially that scene, like you said earlier with, with uh, Miggs, his cellmate or the the serial killer that's uh, housed next to Hannibal Lecter. When Miggs throws the bodily fluids at her, Hannibal Lecter calls Clarice back and he goes on this mini rant about like, I would never allow that. That's so disrespectful and all these things. And then we see what he does to Miggs. He, he basically, he uses his intellect to get Miggs to swallow his own tongue, which is just like, that's not something that you would think that anybody's capable of doing, but it's kind of just, again, shows him as being almost like the highest level of evil that he doesn't even need to be in the same room with somebody and he can get them to kill themselves. Right. And I, I envy that specific aspect of Hannibal Lecter, but you know, I, the, I like the, the kind of angle that you're coming at it with. Cause again, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? The more the film progresses, the more, you know, kind of bullshit that she has to encounter it seems like the more helpful that he is to her, right? He tells the senator uh, that it's, uh, yeah, I, forget, I can't remember the name of the, the person's name that he claims is the, you know, is Buffalo Bill. He clearly tells Clarice something different. He yeah. Gives her a little bit more insight that he's willing to give other folks. And I, again, to the point of like, there's no sexual um, tension or anything like that on his part. I think he comes to this more of a place as a father because he, I don't know if he in, intuitively knows this um, or if at, at certain conversations kind of allude to this, but obvious. So her dad obviously is dead and, and she, you know, kind of explains that in one of her visions. We see that, right. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like he kind of ends up taking on a weird role of like a dad for her. Cause again, he mentions like, you know, I, 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 if I'm going to do this, it's obviously going to be to further your career. He says that in some form or other. And again, you know, even towards the end when he calls her the day of her, you know, inaugural. Yeah, I'm not sure what she, she was promoted or something. She became, she became an agent. Oh, she, That's oh. what it was because she was a trainee of the whole That's film. That's a hell of a gold star you captured. Yeah. <laughs> I think she gets a tenure right off the bat. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so you you see that, and then again, he's in—I don't know if he's in Haiti or what country he's in—to follow Chip. Right, it's somewhere in the Caribbean, yeah. I think. Which, by the way, God, I'd love to be that place right now. That'd, that'd be lovely on the beach. Be pretty yeah. nice. Nice change of scenery. A little cocktail, but anyways. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
you know, the, again, the juxtaposition of, you know, she's celebrating while he's ready on the hunt and he's still taking that little time out of his day to reach out and be like, you know, I, I'm not going to hunt you down. I don't want you to think of that in your, in the back of your mind, but I'm also mm -hmm. not going to turn myself in obviously. And, you know, not to skip to that far ending, but that, the way that the movie ends with him just eerily walking behind Chitlin and you know, those, yeah. whoever he has, it's just, it's another one of those little like sprinkles on top of this movie that it's just, it adds such another eeriness and dread to like, okay, well he's going to kill again, obviously where the, where the heck is this going to go? Right. Yeah. Well, again, like in that where he's stalking Chilton actually, and he, Anthony Hopkins in an interview said he played that like he was a cat stalking its prey. It's another example of us being told what's about to happen visually rather than showing us like they could have very easily added another 10 minutes on with him killing uh, Dr. Chitlin. And it's just like, we don't need to see that. I think it's more disturbing that he's just very coolly and calmly stalking him through the crowd. And we've already seen what Hannibal Lecter is capable of. So the, we, our imagination is going to think of something more twisted than anything that they could have shown us. But to go back to their relationship, I think, I don't know if I would agree it's like a father-daughter thing. I think it is definitely, to an extent, a kind of mentor relationship because he essentially, he becomes infatuated with her, not sexually, but just, he's, at one point he says like, the world's better with her in it. And he has this idea, he says, so long as you don't call on me, I'm not going to call on you in terms of like, you don't hunt me, I'm not going to have to hunt you, so don't worry about it. But at the same time, it's very much, he says something interesting early on where he says he thinks of his, all of his past uh, patients as experiments. He basically winds up patients that are unstable and he wants to see what they're going to do because he, to amuse his own sick interest. I, I think to a certain extent, he's doing that with Clarice in that she's not, she proves intellectually she's intelligent, which is why he becomes kind of infatuated with her in a certain way. But at the same time, he knows he doesn't know that she's capable of defending herself. She's a trainee. Like she doesn't have any, for lack of a better word, combat experience. So the idea that he's sending this person on their own to go hunt down a serial killer that's killed five or six other women without backup, like I view that as him setting up another experiment. Cause essentially she unofficially becomes his patient in a way. Like he breaks her down. He kind of taps into her fears and traumas where he gets her to admit this whole um, this whole story about like the silence of the lambs where the lambs wouldn't stop crying. She tapping into that childhood that was very traumatic. And so he winds her up basically and sends her off with the clues that help her find Buffalo Bill. But at the same time, there's no way for him to know the outcome. So it's kind of this idea that he's just interested to see what will happen right. to a certain extent. It's I like a... Uh... It's like a scientist and you have a bunch of different lab rats and you, you inject them with something or you put them in various situations and it's like, which one's going to find the cheese and which one's going to kind of electrocute themselves. And you know, yeah. Clarice was, you know, found a way to kind of survive it. I mean, looking back at that movie, what was the, was there a moment where you were like, all right, this is, this is one of the better movies I've seen. Um, or was there a, a moment where it kind of disappointed you in some aspect? You know, I think what I appreciate a lot more is how seamlessly it blends a lot of genres. Cause like 
yeah, this is a horror podcast, but at the same time, it this is not necessarily a horror movie. It's more about like a psychological thriller. There are certain aspects that certainly I find fall under the horror umbrella, but the ways in which Demi, uh, Jonathan Demi subverts a lot of our expectations, because like I said earlier, the setup for this feels kind of procedural. Like I assumed that in rewatching it, when I start to see like her training, she's getting these clues, she's going to go investigate this crime scene. I was like, am I misremembering? Is this movie more kind of like CSI-ish, like a formula? But then you see how it starts to tap into like Hannibal Lecter and the psychology aspect. Then you have the brief kind of like slasher aspect where we see Buffalo Bill using the night vision goggles to abduct that first girl. And then of course we see what he gets up to in the basement and whatnot. But it kind of just effortlessly jumps between those moments. And then Clarice has her kind of like Nancy Drew moments where she's investigating the garage looking for clues. And I was just really impressed in the fact that the movie has all of these different kind of genres that it dabbles in, but the tone remains throughout. Like that's the movie is consistently tense. It's con- consistently disturbing and it never really loses its focus. Despite the fact that we have an investigative part, we have kind of a horror slasher part. If you even want to call it, it's not really fair to call that Buffalo Bill stuff, slasher stuff, but just a more traditional horror thing. where like, I'm going to pick out these women and I'm going to start cutting their skin off and all this grotesque shit. Um, and then you the CSI stuff, like with the moths and everything, like it's just a very well-rounded film that I feel it fully utilizes its runtime. Like there's no real downtime in the entire movie. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm, so let me ask this. I mean, you've obviously, you, you have a good, you know, kind of plethora of experiences in the horror genre. Is Buffalo Bill one of the scariest uh, like horror villains and would you actually put Hannibal Lecter, would you say that he's he's more of a, a scarier kind of a version of that? Or is, is Buffalo Bill worse in, in your kind of regard? You know, I think Buffalo, I think Ted Levine, who plays Buffalo Bill, is fantastic, especially when, when in thinking like what his other roles are. I'd only, I think I'd only ever seen him play like a cop in something else. And so... To go back and realize that this is a younger Ted Levine was very impressive because I'd never seen him in anything like this. Like as not only this is obviously a physical transformation for him to play that character, but like also just psychologically, the way that he portrays um, Buffalo Bill as being very manip- not only manipulative, but then he's jumping in and out of these different personas trying to figure out who he is himself is incredibly disturbing. And one of the scariest parts of the movie is where Clarice pulls her gun on him when she realizes who he is and he starts laughing and it's just like, he's so warped and demented at this point that it's like, he's almost, he thinks it's funny that he got caught. Right. And it's like, that just shows like how forget like the skin suits and the, uh, the, the man vagina, whatever dance, like forget all that. Like the fact that he's so out there, lost it, that his reaction to being caught is just a laugh. Like that's super disturbing to me. Um, I do. I think Hannibal Lecter is a scarier villain just because the idea that he uses his strength to kill people, obviously, like he kills those cops. But at the same time, like his intellect, I think, is more terrifying. And it's what made that original performance, I think, so memorable in that up until that point, like a majority of villains, it's like they're the villain because of their strength or because we see them rip people apart or all of these different things. 
it was very rarely they were scary because of their intellect. That's a good point. That's a very good point. I mean, there's like, we don't ever really see, we have theories on who the Zodiac is, right? Like we don't obviously understand there's some sort of intellect behind that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, Buffalo Bill, I think the scariest part of this movie for me wasn't when, you know, he captures that victim, the senator's daughter, or when, you know, he's laughing eerily down at her as she's screaming and, you know, kind of doing some weird, you know, repping his shirt or whatever the heck mm-hmm. that, right? I, I Mocking her. Yeah, exactly. I, it's, it's, I think it really is that moment where whatever music was playing um, to kind of, you know, accentuate, I guess, the fear that uh, Jodie Foster was was feeling, uh, Clarice was feeling when he's asking, so have you guys, like, are you guys aren't close to finding anyone? Have you found any fingerprints? And she's, again, realizing this whole scene is, oh, okay, I, this is Buffalo Bill. This I'm, I'm in the shit right now. Uh, that, that was probably the scariest moment for me in this whole movie. Cause again, the emotion that you see on her face and then fast forward again, you know, two, three minutes later when she's in that, that room and he turns off the lights and he has the, oh, so again, that he was, you know, you want that first woman and you can see again, she just did such a phenomenal job acting in this. Cause that's how I would be. And that's how I used to be when my parents would mess with me and they'd turn off <laughs> this film tapped into some childhood trauma yeah, for you. Well, yeah. <laughs> not not Buffalo Bill trauma thing. Well, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Again, that's a that would be a podcast for another or a uh, podcast therapy session. Different. But yeah, I think that finale let's jump right into that finale because that I love again, this kind of ties into the fantasy at the fantastical aspects of the horror of this movie that even though it feels exaggerated but it's done so well and it's so it's conveyed so in such a disturbing way that it works really well like how fucking big is that basement that basement just goes on forever like you see an outside shot of the house and it's just a simple two three story house but then the basement is like the size of a football field because of all these yeah there seems but but at the same time like there are so many it's it turns into a labyrinth basically And you see all of these different rooms and all how each room is basically reveals a different characteristic of Buffalo Bill. Like he's got the well, he's got the sewing shop, he's got the moth, uh, moth sanctuary, I guess we'll call it. And then we see that he uses the night vision goggles again, which I completely forgot about because he only uses it once in the movie. And that was an hour previously. And then again, we get this depiction of him his uh, deteriorating sanity the farther down the well so to speak that he falls in that instead of just he could have killed her in the first 30 seconds of the lights being out but instead he chooses to stalk her and then like run his fingers through her hair and all this stuff and it just shows how depraved he is that he he doesn't give a shit what happens to him eventually he's just kind of like living in the adulation of the moment right i mean i think to a certain extent at that point no matter how crazy he is I think there is some sort of understanding that, okay, the jig is up, right? Like if there's one officer here, it's only a matter of time. And I think at one point, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she even yells when she's in that room with the girl, like in that tunnel room, and you know, mm-hmm. she can't feasibly get her out by herself. 
alone while doing it and protecting them. Yells Mm -hmm. out, yeah, the other officers are on their way soon to give him the, okay, so it doesn't, you know, give him the understanding that no matter what happens in this situation, you're going to get caught. So again, I think that's why instead of like, you know, hitting her over the head with the pistol or, or trying to, you know, tackle her or something, he ends up, you know, clicking back the the gun to shoot her. I, I'm obviously not a, a gun nut, so I apologize if I butchered that. But <laughs> it's okay. The hammer. Yeah, sure, whatever. Um he obviously <laughs> hears that and shoots him. And again, it it just compounds the the anxiety that we all feel for her, where it slows down on him and like you can see a little bit of the illuminating light of the night vision goggles when it, the camera's panned to him and then back to starling and she's completely in the dark she has no idea what's going on i think that's a really good kind of analogy for the whole movie where she's just she's kind of in the dark on a lot of things and she's just trying to kind of fight her way out and she's able with various clues to to do that and ultimately obviously be the hero of it yeah, I think that finale is so well done again is that even you have this such a strong female character that is very much outside the box in terms of like films of the 90s, I feel like especially early 90s all of these big action movies came out and they were all male. So it feels like during that era at least there was like it very male dominated, not to say that much has changed in that regard now, but at the same time like she's on her own and she's de- she has to overcome these insurmountable odds seemingly and like and no matter what it shows that she's able to kind of persevere through everything like she's one on one with the serial killer and the lights are off now and she can't see and the serial killer is the upper hand and she still manages to kill him in the end right. and i think again it kind of just shows that she is such a strong figure in the film itself that no matter what she's going to be able to overcome it um but yeah, this was, I, I mean, I really enjoyed watching this film. Obviously, I'm in the middle of uh, re-watching the TV series, on which is on Netflix right now. And I did a review uh, last week, I believe, on it. But uh, if you dig Silence of the Lambs, like, I, this is the strongest film. I don't know that, personally, I would recommend people watch Silence of the Lambs and then watch the Hannibal TV series and then maybe go see Hannibal or Red Dragon. I, I can't speak to that fully. All I could just tell you is I will always remember that scene in Red Dragon. I think it's the most iconic scene of all of them where he has that reporter like glued into that wheelchair and he oh, yeah. <laughs> pushes him down like a hill. I don't know yeah. why, but as, after I saw that at like 12 years old, I was like, I, I don't want any part of a serial killer. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, I apologize, I do have some fava beans waiting for me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good, uh, I don't want to keep you from your fava beans. But uh, as always, man, I appreciate having you on. This was a ton of fun. I, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, obviously, I, I love doing these and love listening to, to all your work, man. So, you know, keep up the good stuff, Jay. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.